edition of Deconversion Therapy. This is Karen, and we have no Bonnie this week. She is on a well-deserved month-long vacation, and if you don't know what happened with some of our recordings, just go find us on all the social media areas, and we explain it there. But I took a poll of what some of you would want to hear, what I could record, by the way, this is Karen, while she's enjoying herself, and the number one thing you all wanted to hear was true crime, which is great because... I really want to do this story. Also, the other ones that I mentioned, including missionary work, I thought, you know, let's wait for Bonnie, because that would be really good to bounce that off of her since I was a missionary, and uh, she would just send me postcards with guys wearing G-strings to my mission base. That was fun. And before I jump in, you're going to find everything you need to know, my sources, etc., right in the description of this episode. And you're going to see our link to our new merch, which we just released that has like some hilarious shirts. We even have our back masking ones that say backwards, F the patriarchy, don't be a ship pile. Uh, we have satanic picnic shirts. Go look at it. So let me give some disclaimers before I get into the true crime. First of all, I am not going to ever get into the real heinous stuff. No need for that. Our imaginations are bad enough. But why I feel that a lot of women especially love true crime is, for me, it's the only time we get to sit in the power position, the only time we're in that godlike view where we're looking down and listening to a program or watching a show where we're not the victims, but we're actually above the people who are committing the crimes on women usually women, and it's like this safe space and this place of power because usually you see that the person gets caught in the end and you're like, aha. So for me, it's sort of an empowering thing to listen to or watch true crime. So pull up a comfy chair and let's all go down to Florida. I know, it's a shock, right? We're going to find church-related true crime in Florida. Well, here we go. This story takes place in 2011 on the Emerald Coast. And if you haven't been down there, that's where a lot of people from Tennessee go. Although, I grew up in South Florida um, on the Miami side. And I will tell you, we never went up to the Panhandle. And we always thought it was, you know podunk town and all that, I found that it's quite different there. So you have like the ultimate preppy areas like Seaside and Rosemary, and then you have places like Destin where we stayed once and my daughter was laying out at the condo pool, felt something falling on her, and we looked up and it was an old man clipping his toenails like nine stories up. So that was fun. So it's a, it's a big mix and match of different kinds of people. And down there was a church called Calvary of Emerald Coast. Now, I've done some research, and what I think is that they have now rebranded, good idea, and they're called The Anchor. 
the website didn't have a great this is what we believe type section, so I can't tell except that it seems, you know, it's a cool church. That's it. There's a lot of singing and praising and and whatnot. At this time, there was a pastor named James Flanders. Go ahead and, you know, get out all your Ned Flanders jokes right now, and his wife, Tanya. And they were, you know, at least he was trying to be cool, you know, the shaved head, the shirts that could sometimes be a little bright with the jeans, the tennis shoes, holding the Bible in one hand, but having it like bent like a scroll in one hand, you know how they do, and everything is topical. So you're not just preaching about one verse in the Bible. You're you're like taking a topic like love, and then you're going and you're finding all the things in the Bible that pertain to it and really trying to get it down and groovy for, for the kid folk out there. To me, James just didn't quite fit the totally cool Hillsong vibe. Um, but I, I think, you know, he attained to be that. And there were a lot of sermons up online. Most of them have been scrubbed since then, but he was very charismatic. And one of the reasons I'm excited to do true crime is that I listen to a lot, and so many of them have people who grew up in the church or were Christians or were evangelical or were raised by strict evangelical or Catholic parents, whatever it is. And a lot of the people that do the hosting don't have the understanding of the inner life of that kind of person. So every time I hear something, I want to call in as if it's live and say, no, no, what they're doing right there, that's because they believe blah, blah, blah. So now I get to go ahead and do that. And one of the things I'm going to say is that this seems like a charismatic light church, which means let's raise some hands and you know, we can pray for healing and things like that, but we're not actually doing all out speaking in tongues, knocking people over. You know, it's right there in that charismatic part, not going over to the Pentecostal. And people sometimes confuse the word charismatic when I say that James Flanders was charismatic. You know, his personality really did suck people in, made him feel like he was talking to you and he was excited about something and he could really relate his point to other people. But I think he's also charismatic in the religious sense. Now, I've seen this in pastors and their wives a lot, where I guess the wife looked and seems more like that average church woman involved with the women and maybe the children's ministry. And then the husband starts, you know, hanging out at CrossFit. And you see sort of a divide in the way they look and they dress and all that kind of stuff. James built a pretty big church, and they have the whole praise band thing. His podium is is a cross. You get the picture. They also do a lot of outreach, and you know they're they're right there in the community. Plus, the church, if you didn't grow up in it, it is a town of itself. So everyone sort of plays their part, and usually 
the, quote, popular ones are the people that are more involved. Um, There's a lot of small groups that break off and different little factions that focus on different things in the church. Again, children's ministry, or maybe they're into hospitality and cooking for people or out visiting the sick or whatever it is. It becomes its own community with the working parts. I guess it was about 2010, a 36-year-old woman named Maria Carlson joined the church. And Maria Carlson was half American, half Filipino. From her past, it looks like she had a lot of things happening in her family life growing up that were confusing enough to be trauma, like many of us have. And she seemed sort of just like that woman at church, the single woman who is very vivacious, maybe a little flighty, but in a good way, like that free-spirited one. However, every time you would say, so where are you living? It would be, you know, maybe with a different person at the church that she'd run into after Sunday school, became friends, and lived with them for three months, and then someone else for three months. She was diagnosed with bipolar, so she was working within those parameters, and she was taking medicine for it. She had been married before to a guy named Jeff, and she and Jeff had a daughter. And I think that sort of the instability of her diagnosis, plus probably natural personality, she recognized she wasn't the best to raise the child single-handedly, and she actually gave the child full custody to Jeff, even though Jeff seemed to still stay friends with Maria and be really loving and cared for her in many ways. Maria just seemed to be the type of person that moved a lot and had a lot of different ideas of what she wanted to do in life. But there was a time that she worked for the police in Colorado as a booking agent. So she's very smart. Um, It's just, you know, you're trying to to bring that all in. So she had found her church home at the Calvary Church there in the Fort Walton Emerald Coast area of Florida and was really enjoying it. Soon, the pastor, James and Tanya, found out that she was struggling finding a home to live in, and they took her in, which I don't know if that was unusual for them or that's just one of the things they did. And she ended up living with them for a while and seemed to be really close friends with Tanya. However, it wasn't long before who I think people probably viewed as a struggling sort of wayward single mother, you know, trying to get her life right with God before she became pregnant. And James and Tanya said they would still let her live at the house. All the church members were very understanding and supportive of that. And after a while, it came out that she was actually very nervous about having the child and wasn't sure if she should, you know, keep the child. And that's when the pastor and his wife stepped in and said, we've been praying for a child for a long time. And here we go. If you grew up in church, you know this. So when Dateline talks about this, it's just one of those, you know, they wanted a kid and so 
they saw an opportunity that this would be perfect. But you know, if you grew up in church, that the idea of praying for something and then feeling that something comes along is the divine answer from God. Like this is God putting everything, even using the bad of, you know, this woman not having a father in her life right then for the baby. God can use that for good. I'm sure there was a whole bunch of hallelujahs and there was an agreement because it seemed perfectly fit that Tanya and James wanted to adopt the baby when it was born, and that Maria would help breastfeed it, get it, you know, going and all that for about three months, and then she would move out and do her own thing. Everyone thought, well, this is a bit strange, but, you know, that's, that's God right there. In the church, Tanya, the pastor's wife, had what was called her inner circle, which would be you know, the few trusted women that she would go out to eat with and pray with and all that, sort of like a small group, I guess. And they knew they were called the inner circle. So that's a bit cringy. But anyway, they were told a few different things. And one of those was that Maria had been with an abusive boyfriend who got her pregnant and then left her. So it really made it look even kinder and sweeter, that the pastor and the wife were taking care of her, and that this was that answer to prayer that they probably had all been praying within the inner circle. The church women even threw a baby shower, not for Maria, but for Tanya, about she's getting to have the baby. Now, Maria was present at the baby shower. Maria was big old pregnant, and Tanya even put like a balloon under her shirt to pretend she was looking like she was pregnant for like a funny photo, but everyone was very supportive, it seemed. They had the baby, and for Maria, it was another daughter. She already had a daughter with her ex-husband, Jeff, who she loved immensely, the daughter there, and now she had this little daughter that she was going to be handing over to James and Tanya. And it was about three months later when Maria sent out a text to all her friends and relatives basically saying, hey, I've taken off. I'm going to do something I've always wanted to do. I didn't tell you guys before because I knew you would try and stop me. Most of the people who read this didn't think it was weird at all. Like that seemed to be her MO most of her life and the fact that the baby you know, I guess was past the breastfeeding age or whatever, and she was leaving it with the pastor and the wife, and now she was going to do her own thing, seems sort of normal to a lot of people who heard it. However, her ex-husband thought it was particularly strange because he knew she would never stop contact with him and the daughter that they had in common, and that she would leave the daughter that they had because she was obsessed, loved, was crazy about her little first daughter. So Jeff thought that was weird, um, and eventually he reported it to police. Police find out that the last place she was seen and lived was with the pastor and the wife, the Flanders. So they went there and they questioned them, but of course 
There was nothing. James said he had gone running, and the wife had gone to, like, Beale's Outlet or something. And when they both returned, Maria was gone. They went and looked for her, and James ended up driving to the airport, and he located her truck there in the parking lot, and he drove it back home. Of course, the police checked, and there was nothing that said she had flown anywhere, and nobody had seen her. And that's when the pressure really started on the pastor and Tanya. And I'm sure people were talking because it is church, and that's what happens. But there were a few, you know, people that he really held in confidence that he began to talk to. And one was an elder of the church who he said, you know, I'm just really freaking out about all this. I need to get out of the country. Can you get me out of the country? And the elder was like, no. And if you don't know what an elder is, sometimes they're officials, sometimes they're not. They're usually people who have been Christians a long time, and it's almost like like a board of directors, you know, just some overseers that would be on the pastor's spiritual level, maybe even above where the pastor could have conversation and, and get counsel from them as well. But they could also approach him and be like, ah, oh, we don't like what this is doing or this is happening here. So he had asked one, can you get me out of the country? This is bad. This is just bad. I just need to go. Luckily, the elder said no. However, it seems like, you know, the convo ended there, which, again, in the church sort of spiritual realm, it seems like a lot of people would ask questions when things like this happened, but usually there's just this innate trust, which is why there's so many people doing shitty things in church and being abusive, because People feel they'll get convicted of whatever they're doing wrong, and then they'll confess it. So if anything is really wrong here, they're going to say it. And because he didn't really say anything specific, it was sort of just assume, well, this guy's really stressed out because he has a new baby now. Now the police are coming. They can't find Marie, whatever, you know, doesn't know what's going on. But then one of the inner circle, remember the ladies who were around Tanya? One of them had said, you know, that the pregnancy was from an abusive boyfriend with Maria. Another one said, no, Maria was a surrogate for them. So when these conflicting stories started coming about, a few people got talking, including, I think he was the minister of youth at the time. And you can look up all the names, not going to point them out. He looks like he's at a different church down there now. He approached, who was his mentor, the pastor, and asked him, were you having a relationship in any way with Maria? And that's when the pastor said, yes, I was. They asked the pastor to resign which he did, and he and his wife and the new adopted baby took off to Arizona. They just got out of Dodge. And then, of course, more things would slowly come out. When the police questioned Tanya, the wife, about, wait, was she having your surrogate baby? Tanya went ahead and admitted yes. 
Not only had we been praying for a kid, and and here comes this young woman who's willing to do this for us. We did it the, quote, old-fashioned way. Tanya says she was in the room when her husband impregnated Maria. So this is already sort of off the rails of most denominations uh, and theology in the U.S., but also his sermons started to change a little bit. There were one or two sermons that have been scrubbed now where James read a few verses that sort of promote or do promote polygamy. And guess what? All in the Old Testament and a lot in the New Testament. Yeah, polygamy's there. That was a practice that was pretty common and concubines. But the way he brought it up made some people in the church pretty upset. In fact, supposedly some left over what he was saying because they were like, uh-uh, you're, you're doing something weird right now. I don't know where it's going, but I don't want any part of it. Of course, little did they know that not only was Maria impregnated by him with his wife watching, but it begins to get revealed that they were actually a thruple, that he called her a sister wife, and that they had all agreed to be in a relationship together. Now, there's a bit of a bullseye on Tanya, because Tanya is not as young and fit and just, you know, traditionally beautiful as Maria is. And they're in this relationship, and the other one can give him a baby. I mean, it's pretty Old Testament biblical right here. Does she know where Maria went? Did she have something to do with anything? Three years went by, like no one heard from Maria. And of course, most of the people close to her just felt she's gone. You know, this this isn't her behavior. And then they called Cold Justice. That's right. It's a great TV show. They start getting all the text messages from Maria's phone because now they can access that with new technology because I guess some of it was erased. Uh, they started pinging the phones of James and Tanya and Maria, finding who was where, when, and things started, of course, to be revealed. And they started to read some of the messages between Maria and James. I'm just going to read you one where James says to Maria, My penis says hello. There were mentions of mouth massages, you know, get, yeah, that's a different podcast, but we see what's happening. So if Tanya saw, these texts, I would assume she would get very upset at this. Because it was three years later when they started re-questioning people, a lot of the women in the inner circle, the youth pastor, different people, they stopped having such personal attachments to the pastor, and they could sort of start seeing things with new eyes, which a lot of us who left the church know that feeling exactly. And some of them started coming forward and saying a few other things, such as the youth pastor said that James admitted that he'd had a physical altercation with Maria. 
She had threatened to leave. She didn't want to have anything to do with the threesome anymore because she wanted to take her newborn baby and go. And supposedly that's when she attacked him, scratched him up. He tried to defend himself and protect himself. And that's all that he said. It was assumed that that's what was her last straw and she left. However, in September, a month before Maria disappeared, there's actually a sermon by James where he's talking about what love your enemies means. And he's all cool. And he's like, it doesn't mean you just roll over and you let people do terrible things to you. He says, when someone backstabs me, lies about me, my feelings say, choke the life out of them. And then he pauses, and then he laughs. And I must say, I quite enjoy recorded and put on YouTube sermons that get to be used as character building for a defendant in a murder trial. With the GPS technology, they began to trace where the cell phones were, and they saw that James's happened to move everywhere her truck moved during the time, during the day she disappeared. Well, Tanya was definitely somewhere else shopping or whatever. And this totally made their case. So they went ahead and arrested James and charged him with the murder of Maria. And that is when he broke down and admitted everything. He admitted that they were in a three-way relationship, and he didn't exactly say what happened and, and what the issue was, but he did say he tried to restrain her by just giving her a big hug. So I love the usage of hug to denote something that was actually suffocation. What gets me every time is the fucking plea deal. And that's where the family so feels that they need to know where the body is to give her a proper burial, etc., that they make a deal with the person, the murderer who killed her, that if you tell us where you put her, you know, you, you get less of a sentence. She was in the backyard the whole time. When he finally pointed the police to write where he buried her, he dramatically fell on his knees and cried and was like, I'm so sorry, Maria, I'm so sorry. And nobody bought it. It was really um, a little bit of overacting there. But by him doing that, he only got 15 years in prison, which, man, I mean, I don't know what I would do if I were in that position, um, especially if it was a loved one. I totally understand that it's just their body and they're not there anymore, but I can agree that I feel I would want them under, quote, my care somehow. But I do feel like it's almost a chess move where it's like, tell us where she is. You're going to get this teeny tiny sentence. And then it's in the backyard, which could have been an area they end up searching anyway down the line. I don't know. 
We need to give a lot of credit to Sergeant Nestle Suey Moore, who is the one who really stayed after this case um, and saw it all the way to the end and turned everything around. But also, here's the grossest part of it. Tanya the wife is still in Arizona, I think, but she is still raising Maria's child. Maria's family now has legal right to see the child and visit with her, etc. But because Maria had been living with them and then disappeared and all these things, I think they went through the process of adopting her. And I guess the law can no longer do anything. Um, and so, yes, she's being raised by the murderer's wife. Which means, in 15 years, Daddy gets home from prison. I can't imagine the fucking therapy this young girl is going to need. And they're just going to be this fucking happy family. Was Tanya involved in any way? We don't know. But you can listen to how she answers the police's questions. She's very defensive. She lied a few times of how and why Maria got pregnant. So she's not beyond that. She's not a submissive, sweet woman. All in all, this pastor and his wife damaged so many lives, the lives of both Maria's children and the ex-husband, even just people who attended the church, just obliterated all of it so his penis could say hello. Thanks for listening to one of the most intriguing stories that always sticks in my mind. And there are quite a few others that I can do during the time that Bonnie's gone. Just let me know what you think on the social media. I'm on TikTok, sometimes Twitter. Then there's Instagram and our Facebook group, which is really great. That's it. And don't be a shit pile. Just don't be a pastor.